you have a question about the Bible? Do you ever wonder how to know or understand things about God? Maybe you're struggling with an issue in your walk with God. We're here to help today. This is Open Line with Dr. Michael Riddelnik. It's Moody Radio's Bible study across America. The phone number to call to ask your Bible question today is 877-548-3675. Now, I'm not Michael Riddelnik. You might be able to tell that just by my voice. I am, am and instead am Mike Fabares. Maybe you recognize my voice from another program. Occasionally, I have the privilege of sitting in here for Michael Riddelnik, and I'm coming to you live across many of the radio stations on the Moody Network. And we, as Michael Riddelnik likes to say, are just sitting around this radio kitchen table talking about questions regarding the Bible, the Christian life, things that you might be struggling with in the scriptures. So I'm here today, the pastor of Compass Bible Church in Aliso Viejo, California. That's what I do most of my time. I'm also the voice of Focal Point Radio. You may hear that here on the Moody Network as well, where I preach the Word of God to you every day, Monday through Friday. I'm also happen to be a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute, which is why Dr. Rydelnik is not here today. Uh, he's out there celebrating in his very important role as the dean of the undergrad school here at Moody, and he's doing his duties, doing all that he's supposed to be doing. So I'm here today filling in for him. I'm also, uh, the voice that you're going to hear for the next couple of hours as we sit back and take your questions and understand what the Bible has to say about everything that you might be wondering. So we want you to be involved in the program. The program doesn't work unless you call us in, so we want you to call us in with your questions, 877-548-3675. That's 877-548-3675. And even if you've never called in before, today would be a great day. So you can call in a second time when the pro is here behind the microphone. But today, you can get started with me on open line. And if you don't want to call in, but you do have a question and you're shy, go to the website. Go to OpenLine website. That's OpenLine Radio, no spaces, OpenLineRadio.org, dot O-R-G. And then just fill out that form that says, Ask Michael a Question. That little section there will send us your Bible question. It'll get it to our team. And then you can get in the queue of your questions that you have that'll get on the program. So we've got a great production team. We can't do this without very important people outside of this little room that I'm in, our engineering team. We've got Trish McMillan. She's producing. Courtney Young, of course, our engineer. Charles Coletta's answering the phones. He's the one you'll talk to first. Again, our number for you to get involved in the program, 877-548-3675. So I hope you're ready. I hope you're settled in. If you got your Bible available, get it out and follow along with us as we study the Scriptures together. Now, I'm telling you, I am so excited about all that's going on here on the campus. Oftentimes, I don't get a chance to see a day that is important as this, where people are floating around the campus of the Moody Bible Institute in all their regalia, graduating, and of course, the graduations everyone's hearing about this time of year. People looking forward to the future, and they're looking at what's next for them, about the things that God has called them to do, particularly these students here at Moody, trying to see how they can live on mission, no exactly what they're called to be as Christians, salt and light in this world, uh, ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is so important that we understand our role. And these young people, I hope that you are praying for them. 
They're getting ready to go out and begin jobs, some of them going on to higher education elsewhere, some going into our graduate school here at Moody, and we just want to be praying for them. We need this next generation to be rooted and grounded in the truth, and it is so important that we understand that we have to have a generation of people that are not afraid to stand against the flow of the culture. They need courage, and they need that kind of internal fortitude to stand strong, even when the cultural winds are pressing hard against them. As Paul said, and this is the goal of the church, it's the goal of Moody Radio, is to get people that are rooted and grounded in God's truth so that they're not driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine. So please pray for our graduates today, and I hope you'll pray for everyone around you, everyone that you know and yourself as well, that we will all be courageous in a time where we need courage to live the Christian life in America more than we ever have, and certainly in a long, long time. And like our brothers and sisters around the world that are struggling, and they have a lot of cultural winds pressing against them, we know that we stand uh, with a long line of people, not only back in history, but around the globe that need strength. And one of the things we can do in this program is answer your questions, and I hope that brings strength to your life. And so we're going to go to the phones now. We've got Robert on the air, Miami, Florida. Robert, welcome to the program. You're you're listening here to Michael Rodelnik's show, but you're talking to Mike Fabares. How can I help today, Robert? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm just kind of curious. I've talked to other people about this, and we're kind of stumped. Um, the sin of Bathsheba is never really addressed in um, Scripture. And in, uh, in, uh I guess it's First Kings where it talks about uh, Solomon ascending the throne. Bathsheba's mentioned, but, you know, it's referenced as she's the queen, she's a noble woman. But it's, it's never mentioned, uh, you know, Bathsheba committed adultery with David, threw her husband under the bus, allowed the murder, no repercussions or anything. Can you explain that? Is there a reason why, or am I missing it in Scripture? Well, the passage that first tells us this story, which I think certainly gives us the power dynamic that's in play here, as the king, which certainly in an ancient Near Eastern monarchy, you weren't going to defy the king, and he's the one who went because he saw her. I mean, there was a really embarrassing, humiliating scene here in David's life of him being voyeuristic, watching Bathsheba, a beautiful woman, uh, bathing. This is a, a situation where we have a woman who is following the directive of the king. Who knows why she's being summoned in? She doesn't know that at the time. And uh, I think this power dynamic of the one who should know better, the one who's writing scripture, the one who's trusting in the Lord, the one who's doing all these things and directing and shepherding the people of Israel, certainly the onus of responsibility largely lies on David's shoulders, and therefore the text of scripture is focusing on David's sin, and it does focus on David's sin. And though I think we could see there's lots of culpability all throughout the scripture whenever anyone sins— the primary responsibility is laid on David, and that's why it is a sin, and David has to suffer the repercussions of that sin, and so does Israel in many ways. So I think that's why it is presented the way it is, and uh, though I'm sure as we get to heaven and we see all the details of everything, we may have more blame to go around, but the Scriptures remembers a very concise record of what takes place, and unfortunately, uh, we may not have all the details that we want, and we have to sometimes fill in the details with supposition 
and yet we should be careful not to assume more than is in the text. We have to leave some of that until we get to meet Christ face-to-face and get around to asking some of these questions. Does that help, Robert? A little. Yeah, David certainly was the now, perpetrator of the we sin. Christ... Well, well, no, 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 no. I, I understand what you're saying, but um, I don't think when we get to heaven we'll be discussing the sins of the past because Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes. I mean, heaven's not heaven if we dwell on the sins of the past, is it? <laughs> no, but I think we'll have the mind of Christ, as it says in First John 3, so I think we'll be well, able— that, yeah, that, to have information. And this is part of God's Word. God's Word is certainly the most important thing in the world. Isaiah 40 says, everything else goes away, the Word of the Lord stands forever. And so I think uh, interest about the Scripture and understanding it, uh, I certainly think there's a, uh, there is a, a, a logical inference that I think we'll know the Scriptures much better than we do now. But thanks for the call, Robert. Certainly gets us thinking about the narratives of the text of Scripture. And we're going to go out to Chattanooga, Tennessee right now, to WMBW. And John, you're on the air with Mike Fabar as an open line today. How can I help? Yes, um, according to what Scripture says about Christ's return and taking his church back to heaven, um, how close do you think that is to happening? Well, I think the Bible would have us assume that it is very, very close because every generation of believer is supposed to live with that eminent sense of the Lord's return at any time. I was just asked this last night. It's funny that you uh, word it the way you do. Someone said to me a very similar question. I was out to dinner last night here in Chicago, and uh, they were asking, is there anything that needs to happen before Jesus Christ is dispatched to meet his church in the air? And I said, there's nothing. Uh, There are several things that need to happen before his feet touch the Mount of Olives at the end of the Great Tribulational period, but there's nothing holding back the return of Christ, at least on the chronological prophetic calendar. And that's why Christians should live with that sense of your kingdom come, uh, that sense of Maranatha, as it says in the end there to that letter to the Corinthians. We want to be always ready. That's what Jesus taught us in the parables, always ready for the return of Christ. We always ought to be looking for that. We ought to be anticipating that. We ought to be seeking the things above, to quote Colossians 3. So this is our mindset, and Jesus would not have us think, well, it's far away. It's a long time away. As a matter of fact, when he tells the parable about the servants who say, well, the master's not going to return for a long time, if that mindset ever settles in, then they start to do the things in the parable, like beat each other, and they get drunk, and they're not very... uh, fastidious or careful or circumspect about their responsibilities. So we need to always be expecting the Lord's return. And I'm, I'm, I'm at fault as much as any Christian, I think. I know it doctrinally, but we need to think about it more often. It needs to be a palpable expectation. But I don't think there's anything that would with, uh, prevent or withhold Christ from this afternoon or even before this broadcast is finished, uh, having Christ come back to meet uh, his church there in the air and take us to be with him. I see. Yeah. Well, it, it seems it seems like um, um, uh, for the past six years, uh, things have exploded to where it's 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 nothing like uh, uh, it's nothing like it was when I grew in the in the in the sixties, sixties, seventies, and eighties. I mean, things have just turned upside down tremendously. Absolutely, and and Paul said to Timothy, things are going to go from bad to worse. So we know that. But the real horrific times that the Bible speaks of in Daniel chapter 12, Matthew 24, 
These times that we see spelled out in Revelation chapters 6 through 19, the worst of the worst is going to happen, I believe, after the church is taken out of the way. It's not because the church is trying to avoid the concept of persecution. It's just that that period of Jacob's trouble, that 70th week of Daniel, is reserved for God preparing his people Israel for their Messiah and God's judgment on the earth. So we're not going to be a part of that. That's the doctrine here that Dr. Radelnik and I both espouse, and I think it's important for us to realize that that means that the worst of the worst that we read about in the scene when Christ comes back to save his people in the Battle of Armageddon, the people of Israel and others, Gentiles that are saved during the tribulational period, that time can get a lot worse than the time in which Jesus comes to get his bride. So we need to know, yeah, it's going to be bad before Christ comes back, but it's going to get really bad before his feet come to the Mount of Olives and it splits, as Zechariah 14 says. So I hope that helps, John, and we're so grateful for your call. We got so much going on here. We want to get to all of your questions. I'm Mike Fabar, sitting in for Dr. Michael Redelnik. You're listening to Open Line on Moody Radio, the number 877-548-3675, and we'll be back in just a bit. Genuine godly maturity is the goal of the spiritual life. Although (laughs) that's easier said than achieved. We tend to go from one extreme to another with the hope of experiencing maturity. That's why I want to send you a practical and biblical book, Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie. You can request this classic today when you give a gift of any size to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line with Dr. Michael Radelnik. I'm Mike Fabara sitting in for Dr. Radelnik today, and we've got a lot of calls to get to, and that's what makes this show work, and we're glad that you're here. Let's go to Peggy now in Chicago, listening on the flagship station, WMBI. Peggy, you're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Oh, well, I just love it. I got my coffee, and I'm in the kitchen and looking out my back door, and and I had a question that was just kind of surfaced in my mind this past week, and it's the Greek word ecclesia. Um, I just did some minor research that it's 112 times listed, and I know it's applied to the church as the called out. And I was wondering, in light of today, could that also be applied to the rapture that the church is called out? Well, the word ecclesia is a word that is pretty common just for any kind of assembly. And sometimes it's used for any kind of assembly. But in the church, of course, this word that's used so often is referring to Christ's called out assembly. Uh, And the the origins of the word, it's a two-part word, ek. Uh, epsilon kappa is is to is out out and then klesia comes from kaleo which means to call so we're calling them out but the picture is not calling them up to heaven 
although I guess in this case it applies, the church will be called up to heaven, but it's being called out from wherever you're at, from your home, from the marketplace, to come and assemble as a group, an ecclesia. Well, that that word, of course, that's what it means in a non-technical sense. In a technical sense, it means the people of Christ who are meeting together in honor of Jesus Christ, who are trusting in Christ's finished work for the forgiveness of their sins. So it becomes a very important word to us as we translate it into English, church. So the word church is very important. It's important because it defines who we are. It's the new thing, as uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says, the one new man that God is creating in Christ that's different than Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, so it's it's a critically important word. Now, I don't think that's the intended meaning of the word to say, yeah, they're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, but it doesn't in any way diminish the fact that, of course, they're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I say them, us. I plan to be a part of that whenever that takes place. And uh, so that's what the word means. But if, if someone were looking at it in any period of time, uh, the Greek word ekklesia is just trying to describe that you're pulling people out from their common schedule of whatever they're doing today to meet together in a group. So that's what the word means. But we, of course, translate it very importantly in Scripture as the church, because we're called out not only to have a meeting together, certainly on the first day of the week and several others, if you have a good active church, as I hope that you do, uh, but we're called out from the world as well. We're not like the rest of the world. We're God's children. So that's the idea of the word Peggy, but I guess it's poetic interesting that we're also going to be called physically out of the world with something called the rapture of the church. Does that help, Peggy? Yes, it does. I was wondering if it uh, could apply to uh, the double meaning of uh, being called out to be assembled before God in heaven. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Thank you, Peggy, for the call. But as you hang up, I'm going to just make a quick statement about the concept of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how we interpret the Bible, and the idea of interpreting the Bible is not trying to find all the double meanings, although we do sometimes find those and they're interesting. But when we read the Bible, we're trying to figure out what was intended by the author. Of course, the ultimate author is God's Spirit, but he uses a human author, and what was the intention of the enlisting of these vocabulary words? So I think it's an interesting thing to note that it seems to have a poetic connection to being taken out of the world, but we can't go to Scripture trying to find these connections that were not intended unless we understand that we're going beyond the authority of Scripture just to make some interesting connections. And I think that's the important part of what we mean when we talk about the uh, art and science of hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. And I'm sure Dr. Michael Riddelnik talks a lot about that uh, throughout his program and its importance, because what we're trying to do is good hermeneutics here in answering your Bible questions. Let's go to Tampa, Florida now. WKES, Charlie, you're listening there in Florida. Hope the weather's good. How can I help you today? Yes, I'm calling because I'm trying to understand if it's possible, according to Scripture, to remarry. I'm a divorced woman. Um, My ex-husband did commit adultery. He did divorce me. But I have a a gentleman pursuing me who's divorced as well. And I just want to be sure that it is permissible um, and that I won't be technically an adulterer because I know that no adulterer will enter into the kingdom of heaven. I would like you for the, to explain that to me, but I also would like for you to tell me how can I study this for myself to be sure. Well, I think Matthew chapter 19 is is the passage that has some applicability to a situation where if you have been divorced because your spouse has been sexually immoral, just to read the verse here in Matthew 19, 9, and you marry another, right? Well, then you're not committing adultery, 
But if you're just saying, I'm, I'm divorcing my spouse, and it's not because of the breach of this covenant through sexual immorality, I'm just going to go out and marry another because I didn't like the first one, well, then the Bible says you are committing adultery. And that's the picture that is painted. It's the exception clause in Matthew 19.9. And so if you take that exception clause and you turn it around and you say, okay, well, what if it was for sexual immorality? And that's why this marriage uh, ended. Then you would be, much like we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that you're free to remarry, as the scripture says, but only in the Lord. So you only have the right to remarry a Christian man and uh, you can marry him without fear that you're violating the passage there in Matthew 19, because the Bible is very clear that there is an exception, and that exception is spelled out by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 19. Does that help, Charlie? It definitely does help, but however, in my study, you have also in Romans where he's kind of sort of using an analogy saying that just like um, you're free to marry only if the husband die, as well as even in, when you look in First Corinthians chapter seven and eleven, it also says that if the uh, but if if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put her away. So the, I know Scripture has to interpret Scripture, and this is why I feel a little conflicted, right. and so I just really need to understand. Well, in Romans chapter seven. Paul enlists marriage as an illustration about the law and the binding nature of the law as it relates to us and our sin and Christ coming to free us from that. But the example is, of course, that your marriage covenant is dissolved when one party dies. And that, that's the example being made there. Uh, in, in the normative relationship, of course, that's what would end a, a marriage. If my spouse dies, then we're no longer married. And over there in 1 Corinthians 7, the problem in the text and applying it to your situation, it says if your spouse is willing to live with you, right? Well, then, okay. But if your spouse is abandoning you, well, that's different. And that kind of desertion, because you're a Christian, and that's the context of 1 Corinthians 7, you've got one Christian spouse, one non-Christian spouse. The non-Christian spouse says, I don't want to live with you because you're a Christian, and they abandon you. Then it says, you're, you're free. Let them go. The end of the passage, and that's the passage I quoted, the end of 1 Corinthians 7, says you are free to remarry, but only in the Lord. Now, there's lots of verses between those two, and I know some pastors don't make that connection, but I do think that's what's happening in the text. But your particular situation, if we're talking about someone who's violated the marriage covenant because of sexual immorality, according to Matthew chapter 19, then we know that exception clause is there for a reason, because you're not committing adultery to marry another if that first one was dissolved by a violating party, dissolving that covenant through their uh, unrepentant adultery. So, I, I, of course, and I want you to be careful. And if you're any, if there's any confliction in your conscience, well, then of course, Charlie, I would say you need to back off. It, but I'm, I'm telling you, as a student of Scripture, that I do think the Scripture in this particular case, uh, if someone says, "I, my spouse has left, they're unfaithful, they've sexually been, been engaged in immorality, and and this, that's what the why my relationship came to an end," are you free to remarry? I would say yes, you are free to remarry because there is one situation situation that is clearly spelled out as an exception to this lifelong commitment to the end, as it says in First Corinthians, or Romans, rather, chapter 7 that you quoted. So I hope that helps, Charlie, and I would say certainly sit down with a pastor, someone who knows you can get to know your situation, where you can talk through all the details of this, because you should not be entering into anything, as it says in Romans 14, unless you have faith and confidence that you're doing what is pleasing to the Lord. So when you're conflicted, we don't move forward, uh, but sit down and work it out so that you're not being conflicted about a misunderstanding of Scripture, and, and when Scripture allows, then 
Scripture allows, but you've got to get there in your own conscience and mind. So I hope that helps, Charlie. Very uh, touchy subject. I get that, but thank you so much for the call. Let's head out to Pennsylvania now, listening on WVMN. Lana, you're on the air. How can I help? Uh, yes, I. this is about suicide, and I'm very conflicted in my thoughts. One time I know that my God is is loving and kind and forgiving, and this person was a Christian his whole life, went to church, he believed, and but he became depressed, and he committed suicide. Right. And I'm just so torn with that, and I, I don't know how to, I mean, I pray about it to the Lord all the time and ask Him to um, help my heart to know that it's really none of my business what happened to Him, just to know that I believe. But I just don't know what the Bible says about suicide. Well, the Church, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has said it's an unpardonable sin, and therefore, it doesn't matter if someone was a follower of Christ, uh, they're, they're lost. And, and the Roman Catholic Church has taught that because they've made a distinction between venial sins and mortal sins, trying to say that there's some that irritate God, and then there are some that make us unacceptable to God. And I think that is the problem where most people who are Bible-believing Christians, they kind of get stuck because they think, that's what I've heard. The culture's kind of talked about that. But here's the deal. Real Christians can feel despondent. Real Christians can sin. Uh, here's one sin you recognize that is it's heinous, it's huge. And yet we know that Moses and Job and Elijah and Jonah, they all struggled with feelings of being uh, hopeless and helpless and wanting to end their lives. Uh, now, by God's grace, they didn't. But I just need you to know that it's not an unpardonable sin. It's just a sin, a really bad sin, just like murder is a really bad sin. Self-murder is as well. We would never condone it. We never sweep it under the rug. We never say someone's not responsible. Of course, we are culpable beings, but it is a sin that is forgivable like any other sin if a person is genuinely a follower of Christ, trusting in Jesus Christ. So that, I think, we need to make sure we're not conditioned by our culture to think wrong about this topic. And uh, Lon, I appreciate that call, and that is a sobering, heartfelt question, and I appreciate you calling in today. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm sitting in for Dr. Michael Redelnik. The producer is Trish McMillan. She's going to get into the mailbag with me in a few minutes. You're listening to Open Line on Moody Radio. We'll be right back. Every weekend, Open Line is here to help you understand God, the Bible, and the spiritual life. You ask the questions, and I try to answer straight from Scripture. When you become a Kitchen Table partner, you're not only keeping this program on the radio and internet, you're helping others to hear the truth, and you'll receive exclusive benefits like regular Bible study moments by me offering insight and encouragement. Become a Kitchen Table partner by calling 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm filling in for Dr. Michael Redelnik today. This is the mailbag segment where we answer questions that you've sent in, and we love doing this. And of course, joining me, as happens with this mailbag, is Trish McMillan. Hello, Trish. Hello. What do you have in the mailbag today? Well, I have one question from a woman who called and could not hang on. 
Um, she said, if I was saved but fell back into living by the flesh through immorality and promiscuity for years, can I still be saved according to Romans 8.13 and Romans 6.16? So they kind of talk about um, dying to the flesh and the spirit, you know, now you're living by the spirit. And so she's wondering, she's not living that way now, um, but wonders if during that time that she was saved, would have said she was saved, but right. wasn't living that way. Well, here's what I find that, that we don't have people who are concerned about that question, who haven't gotten to the place of saying, as in this case, I think it was Anne you said was her name, mm-hmm. who says, uh, hey, I'm really concerned about this period of time where in my life I had this moral lapse and I wasn't going to church and I was living a sinful life. I lived according to the flesh. The Bible says if I live according to the flesh, I'm not a child of God. So what's going on? Am I lost? Well, here they're saying that from a position of concern about their soul because now they have repented of that period of time and they're living for the Lord. And I would say this, oftentimes I find whatever was going on in the first segment of the assumed a Christian life. Uh, it, it may have been emotional. It may have been church attendance. It may have been whatever. But after they say, I've come to the place of seeing that as I was living, I was living in the flesh, I was living for myself. It was a, it was not pleasing to the Lord. I often ask them, Do you, could you ever see yourself going back to that? And they say, no, never, never. Then I might start to say, maybe we need to rethink your testimony about real genuine faith in Christ, because real faith in Christ, as it says in James 2, it produces the kind of fruit that we see in this season of your life, not in the former season of your life. So the good news is this. I think if you're concerned about the problem, it probably shows that you've repented of the problem and you're living for Christ, you're clinging to Christ. As John 15 says, you're abiding in Christ. You're going to be bearing fruit, and that's the sign of real Christianity. And I think, Anne, you should be looking forward, forgetting what lies behind, trusting in the Lord daily, seeking to know Him better, and I think you're going to be in good shape. For someone who is living the way Anne used to live now, who says, I don't want to do this anymore— um, I, this isn't filling, you know, that need that I thought it would, or for whatever reason, someone is living, um, in immoral ways. I mean, there's any number of ways that we can live, um, a sinful life for someone who is living that way. What hope is there for them? Well, I would say one word, repent. I mean, it's time to repent and, and, and we all sin as it says in James three, one where right? all, all of us stumble in many ways. I guess James 3, 2, actually. Uh, all of us stumble in many ways. We know that if we say we're without sin, we're lying, and the truth's not in us. So sin is a, a, a reality for Christians. The question is, am I living in it? Am I pursuing it? Am I not concerned about re- repenting of it and confessing it? Uh, it's the person who says, I, I didn't get out of Christianity what I wanted, so I'm just going to live now however I'd like. I'm going to disobey the Lord, live according to the flesh, do whatever feels good. Well, then I'm going to say, yeah, you should be concerned. Because the assurance of our relationship with Christ is related to the way that our faith is living itself out. It should produce fruit. And one of the fruits of our faith is a sorrow over sin. 
And a sorrow over sin means we're going to be miserable chasing the passions of the flesh. So I would say to the one, if you're comfortable pursuing a life of selfish, fleshly indulgence, then you should have reason to think that maybe, much like the soils example in Scripture, uh, the Word of God may hit your life, you may have received it with joy, but it's bearing no fruit because the reality of your heart is not right before God, the Spirit of God has not regenerated you, and I would be definitely concerned. We don't just put an insurance policy in our back pocket because we walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or had some kind of encounter with Christianity and think, well, I'm fine, now I can live for myself. The Bible's very clear. We have to see the fruit of that, and the fruit of that gives us assurance. When we fall, we get back up, we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a regular pattern in the Christian life, and we all go through it. There's no real Christian I know. It doesn't feel like they're repenting of their sins all the time, and it doesn't mean they're becoming new Christians. It just means they're living out the faith of Jesus Christ, and that is a, as Peter said, it's a battle that wages war against our soul. So it's not a comfortable place to be in that battle, but when you give up the battle and you say, I'm not interested in, in, in fighting for righteousness and fighting the good fight of faith, as Paul put it, uh, then I think you should be concerned. And we have one word for you, repent. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. I hope that's encouraging, Anne, um, for where you are now, that you can continue moving forward in trusting Jesus. Um, Oliver wrote us from Illinois, listens to WMBI, in Matthew 6, 7, Jesus tells his, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his listeners not to pray and be repeating words. Um, It says, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Yet in Matthew 26, when Jesus is praying before, um, before he's arrested in the garden, He comes to the disciples, finds them sleeping, and asks Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. So Oliver wants to know, in what context do we pray long? Like that, he says, stay awake and pray. And in what context should we not be praying long because we're just babbling like the idolaters? I do think the people that are babbling like the idolaters are people that are just reciting words I see this, sadly, a lot, even in church, where people are just reciting words they think are the right words to say in prayer. And I don't want to be too critical, because sometimes they're, you know, they're nervous praying in front of others. But we, we need to be praying heartfelt prayers that are sincerely expressing our heart, hopefully saturated with God's Word, and we don't give up. It doesn't mean we ask the same request over and over and over again, but it does mean that we're continually deferring to God in prayer and that we're always seeking the Lord in prayer. And what happens is, as we continue and persist and persevere in prayer, is our prayer requests start to align more and more with what God wants. I think of in 2 Corinthians, Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh, and it says he asked the Lord. Actually, the word is he pleaded with the Lord three times that this physical malady that he had would be removed. And yet, God said no, and so he didn't pray a fourth time. Now, it doesn't mean he wasn't persistent in prayer. I guarantee you Paul continued to pray, but he prayed differently that God would use this thorn in the flesh for good and to glorify him. He understood it was there for his humility. And so we don't stop praying. It's just that we don't just keep repeating things endlessly, thinking that we're going to be heard because I repeated it 27 times. So we always pray. It's like talking to someone, even though the agenda may change along the way. This is a relationship we have with the Lord. We pray to Him regularly, but we just don't keep reciting the same phrases and thinking God's going to hear us because we piled up the same phrase over and over again. Okay. Um, so would this, that, using prayers that 
maybe aren't our own words, is that an okay thing to do? Like sometimes there are some rich theological prayers in books that I have used to, um, uh, I guess, freshen up, <laughs> use the old words to freshen up my prayer life, Yeah. just because they're using words that I'm just not thinking, because I feel like I've gotten stu- stuck in a rut saying some of the same things. Is that okay to do? Absolutely. And, okay. and that's not the repetition. The repetition, of course, that we need to be absolutely cautious of is the kind where our minds are just checked out and our mouth is just, that's why the word is used there, babbling. It's just babbling. Uh, the great thing about praying other people's prayers, and sometimes we do that with Puritan prayers or mm-hmm. prayers from church history, or even a great book by Don Whitney that came out not long ago called Praying the Psalms. I mean, these are God's psalms, and to pray them, these are good things. They help our minds align with different thoughts and different requests, and it is refreshing for our prayer lives. So that's, even though we're repeating something that may have been prayed to God a million times, you know, Psalm 24 or something, it does not mean that that's vain repetition. Vain means my mind is disconnected. I'm just reciting things. I have no idea what I'm saying. I'm thinking about the ball game this afternoon, but I'm saying something, and I say I prayed because I repeated some set of words. Our minds need to always be sincerely engaged. That's the goal. That's the goal in all of our praying, even if we're praying a written prayer that was written 500 years ago. Okay. All right. Thank you for that clarification. I find that very helpful. Um, Brian in Indiana listens to WGNR. It says, in Revelation, we read that God will create a new heaven and a new earth, which led him to wonder then why in Genesis, why did it take God six days or maybe not what did it take. Why did God create the world in six days originally? Is there significance as to why they were created on each certain day? Why not do it all in one day other than just to help us say this is a week and it's seven days long and rest on the seventh? Or maybe that was the purpose. No, I do think that's the purpose. And I think in the book of Exodus, it's given to us that way, even down to why we should let the oxen that plow our fields have a day off. They had to lounge around, they had to sit under the tree in the shade, they had to do whatever they want because they need to be refreshed. And so the pattern of work and rest Jesus gave us in the creation, and I say Jesus because John 1, 1 through 3 says he was actively involved in all creation. Here is the God-man who comes and, and, and lives out human reality for us. I mean, thousands of years later, but in the creation act, he says, here's how human beings with skeletons and cardiovascular systems and pulmonary systems, they need a day to rest. They need a day to recuperate. And so that's why God did it the way he did. Of course, he could do it all instantaneously, but he took his time to show how to work and how to rest. And even everything around us should rest. Our things that we're using to implement our work, everything ought to shut down for a day, not religiously as a sign of a covenant, because the Mosaic covenant is gone. Circumcision means nothing. The Sabbath day has been fulfilled, it says in in Hebrews chapter 4. But because of the pattern that we're human beings, we need a work and rest pattern. And the work and rest pattern is six days we work, one day we rest. I have Mondays off. I don't get to rest on the weekends, but we should have one day where we try to rest. And that's important. It's the one thing, by the way, that we have in our calendars that's not determined by the sun or the moon or the stars or the rotation of the earth. Think about it. It's something that God has imposed and he set that up. There's no astrological reason for a seven-day week. It's just because God said, let's have it. And here we are all this time later still doing it. And I hope everyone 
gets their day off. Even you, Trish. I hope you get a day off every now and then. I try. That's good. (laughs) Well, thank you for those. And I will have more questions next hour for the mailbag. That's great. Well, we have another segment coming up. And the way for you to get involved in the program is to call us at 877-548-3675. It's Open Line on Moody Radio. Michael Radelnik is graduating. He's not graduating. He's helping people graduate. I'm sitting in Mike Fabares, and I'll be back right after these messages. People are always asking about the Jewish people and Jesus. That's why Chosen People Ministries is offering a free booklet called Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus. It explains God's promises to the Jewish people and what they mean today. You'll see how God has preserved his people throughout history and returned them to their land. It reveals how we can all be part of God's plan to reach the Jewish people today. For a free copy of Israel, the Jewish People, and Jesus, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down and you'll see a link that says, A Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of Israel, the Jewish people, and Jesus. Well, welcome back to Open Line. I'm Mike Fabares, filling in for Dr. Michael Ridelnik. We're taking your calls, which we love, to answer your Bible questions, and we're going to get back to the uh, lineup right now. Kay, you're next up from Muskegon, Illinois, listening on WGNB. How can I help? Uh, yes, Miss Muskegon, Michigan. Thank you. Oh, okay. What did I say? I said something. <laughs> anyway, yes, yeah. I'm a California uh, you know, boy, uh, so you never know how I identify people in Michigan. But I love Michigan. <laughs> I'm actually going out there to speak soon, and uh, I love that place. So uh, I do too. Yes. Okay. How can um, I help? Well, I love being in the Psalms, and I love to read them every day. And I just over and over, I love them. But anyway, uh, among other things, I I, I love BSF and so forth. But my question to you that I just it's 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 a, it's a wondering question: What is the word Selah meant? What does it mean, and why is it put in different places and not others? You know, I, it'll be by a praise to the Lord, or asking, or then it will be after uh, David is frustrated by what's happening to him, and he's describing all these awful things. I'm trying to figure out exactly what is the purpose of the word Selah, wow. and what does it mean? Yes, uh, Kay, you've asked a question that has been asked for millennia, because it's a uh-huh. word that we find in the Psalms. It's like the word masculine and other words. We don't know what they mean. But we do know that because these were songs that were sung and what we're reading are lyrics, that they probably, most scholars suggest, they're musical notations. And if you start to look for where Selah is used, and this is one theory, and I think it's a good one, it may mean that at that spot there was a musical interlude, uh, much like we have in modern music where there's some kind of instrumental something. And uh, I remember even having one professor say it's almost like because there's a musical interlude that comes after it, if that really is, in fact, is what it means, it really makes you pause and listen to the last thing, the last thing that was there sung. It was as though that lingers in your mind and resonates. And so I remember once just thinking as I read the Psalms, when I hear the word Selah, when I read it, I got to stop and look at what I just last read and let it sink in and marinate in my mind. And usually, if you look for that, it is a poignant statement that's been made, just as you suggested when you asked the question, Kay. So 
I think that may be right. I think it's one of those words that's been lost through the millennia that we've had, 3,000 years since we've had this word written. I guess there was, we find it also in uh, Habakkuk. So it, it went into the 5th century BC, but it's still long ago, and it has something to do with music, and we're not sure what it means. It could mean here's a solo for an instrument. Uh, we're not sure, but I think that's probably our best guess. And I, I've gone with that even in my devotional reading of the Psalms, that whatever I read just before I see the word Selah, I want to read it twice and just think about what was being said there. So that's our best guess, Kay. Does that help? Yeah, it does. I wondered if it's something like when people say amen, you know, they say something and then they say amen to that, you know, and I wonder if it was meant in that way, but I understand the music part, I think, is is a good thought that that, that maybe, maybe that's a musical interlude of some sort. <laughs> yes, and if you look elsewhere in the Psalms, you'll see phrases like with the stringed instruments or for the flutes or with the trumpets or on the harp. So we know right. that there are lots of notations that do relate to musical instruments. It's that Selah, just we don't know for sure, but has something to do with how it is sung or how it is played. And so that's the best we can do. What a great question, Kay. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day in Michigan. Let's go out to Chicago now where I'm at. Lori, you're on the air. How can I help? Hi, Dr. Mike. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I wonder if after the rapture will come the tribulation and the millennium. And there are so many generations in the millennium. But since all of us believers will be taken in the rapture, who will be around to witness to all those people in the millennium so that they can have the same chance to be saved as we have? Right. That's a good question, Lori. And here's one piece I think you might be missing. Well, there's two pieces that I think answer this question for you. One is we are called as Christians in this age as people that will rule and reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom. So we'll be there. We'll just be there in glorified bodies, much like Jesus had a glorified body when he sat and had a meal with his disciples after the resurrection. We'll have plenty of normal interactions with the people in the millennial kingdom, uh, but we will be there, and we will be there on earth with Christ. We will be ruling and reigning, and maybe just like Jesus said in his parable, will be taking charge of two cities or three cities or, or five cities. So I think we're going to have plenty of interaction with everyone there. The second thing that might help you, Lori, is remember that Christ is ruling and reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. It'd be much like saying, well, who's going to tell people about the president of the United States? Well, it's everywhere. I mean, the news every day will be about Jesus Christ. He's the king. He's in charge. And so everyone will know him, at least in the sense they have an intellectual awareness of them. The question is, at the end of the millennium, when Satan is released, will they be faithful to put their trust in him as the king and the Lord of their lives? And so we will always have opportunities to witness to the Lord, not just those that populate the millennial kingdom who've come through the tribulation, but also us as we come back in glorified bodies, ruling and reigning with Christ. There's no doubt about that. So, Lori, there'll be a lot of evangelism going on. Uh, I, I just think Christ is going to be so ever-present and in every single thing that happens, his banners, his, his name, uh, the fame and glory of the Lord. Um, there'll be no doubt that we have uh, everyone knowing about the Lord, but we need to have them put their trust in him, and we're going to be ambassadors all the way through the millennial kingdom. 
Thank you so much for that question, Lori. That was a good one. We got another hour of Open Line coming up on most of these stations. Our website, which we'd love you to go to, is openlineradio.org. Openlineradio.org. Open, open Line with Dr. Michael Redelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute. My name is Mike Fabares. We've got more coming up for most of you out there. Can't wait to get to more of your questions, and we'll be back in just a little bit right after these messages. Thank you.